0: The World Economic
1: Forum, the World Economic Forum Annual Meeting 2024. Good morning from cold and crisp and future-oriented Davos. The World
0: Economic Forum. The World,
2: Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum. Welcome to this crucial discussion here at the World Economic Forum 2024.
3: Hello and welcome to this special edition of the PR Week, brought to you by Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through this Davos podcast. I'm on the ground in Davos, have been all week. I've got some great interviews with people in the industry. I've got a couple of PR agency CEOs, Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman, Chris Foster at OPRG and Jim O'Leary at Weber Shandwick. Influencer Nadia Okamoto, who's our cover star on our November-December print issue from last year. A non-profit CMO, Nathan Friedman at Understood.com. Org. And finally, emphasis is CMO, Sumit Virmani. So lots of different perspectives on Davos, what uh, people are doing here, the benefits of it, and the big discussions and trends they're finding. So I hope you enjoy them. At the end of the show, Frank Washgook and Diana Bradley will be bringing you all the latest hot PR news from our podcast studio in New York City. So thanks, Frank and Diana, for standing in and enjoy the show. I'm here with Chris Foster in Davos, and uh, Chris is, I think this is your fifth Davos, is it? That's Um, correct. Roughly. So you're a a bit of a veteran. (laughs) I know some people have been coming 20 years, um, I don't know how they do it, to be honest, but uh, <laughs> it's a marathon, not a sprint, isn't it? It but, is. Chris, what are, you, what are you seeing both on the Congress floor and in the fringe parts of the uh, you know, the village where uh, on the promenade where there's just as much going on? What are the, ma- the main themes you're seeing and um, how do they relate to the comms profession?
4: Yeah, no, Steve, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on today. I think one of the themes that, that I'm seeing uh, that's actually excited to hear is We're such a global connected society uh, and the need for us to recognize that, but also the need for much more increased collaboration. That certainly speaks to um, some of the geopolitical challenges we're facing, which I think are impacting all of us, Uh, but then also the need for us to collaborate as a society, as a global society uh, around issues around equality and injustice and justice, which I think is, is important. And it's an important reminder for us as communicators, Um, AI, Uh, Absolutely
3: can't get away from it.
4: You can't, and I think it's good. It's been a very uh, there've been a lot of conversations on AI. I think the conversation's good. It's everything from you know responsible use of Gen AI and AI, but also the opportunities, the opportunities um, you know for us specifically for communicators, uh, for us to become more comfortable uh, with interacting with AI and automation, and allowing it to impact and change the way we practice communication with much more precision. Uh, at scale and at speed. And I think the challenge for communicators is going to be that I think for so long um, is going to be adoption, right? Do we really lean into technology and AI to allow us to partner um, with with the technology in ways we haven't before? I think that's an opportunity. We can learn a lot, quite frankly, from marketers uh, in that regard. I was happy to see a focus on on, on equality and DE&I um, I, yeah, I think GLAD showed up very well this year. Uh, I was at a few of their events, and last year they came in strong. But just, you know, re- really continuing to shine a, a high-beam spotlight on decriminalization and the work that's left to do in that space. Yeah, its they, do, they always
3: essential. do a good job here, Dan.
4: Very good job. And I think it's just important for us to remember that's courageous work. And it's work that impacts all of us in quite a good way. And then I'd say the first year, the diversity can initiative had um, a DEI and summit uh, on the mountain on Monday. Uh, which was great to see. Davos. 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 (laughs) Davos.
3: Um, You're dreaming of the sun, aren't you? dreaming of the sun. But it was
4: also, it was great to see, well, they actually took the program, they did the The model model from Cannes and brought it to Davos for the first time uh, and had a four or five hour session on the mountain, which was so well attended. First time it had been done. So again, I'm just happy to continue to see the the creativity and the resilience of trying to put some of these issues front and center uh,
3: on this global stage. Now, going back to what you said about AI, it's very positive, isn't it? But that's not surprising because all the companies (laughs) down the the street are trying to sell their wares, and that's a big part of Davos. But do you think... I'm sure there's no underestimation of the potential bad sides of AI and the potential of getting the messaging over to the parts of the population who just feel threatened by tech innovation and not seeing it as an opportunity. How do we cross that divide?
4: You know, it's interesting you say that, Steve, because um, we hosted a session uh, with AI, a round table breakfast discussion with MasterCard and Worth, and we talked about the downsides. And, and it was it was interesting because there's a tremendous amount of risk um, you know, that we have to be sensitive to. And it was eye-opening for the communicators in the room. Some of the marketers are more sensitive to it, uh, but just on the liability and risk side of the house and the need for so much more transparency than we're used to. So no, I think the, the conversation's positive and I think a lot of us are optimistic and quite bullish, uh, but we do need to be responsible and recognize there are some risks and some downsides.
3: And for those who aren't at Davos, which is the majority and especially in the communications sector, what would your sort of one or two takeaways be to to the profession, you know, that, that you've uh, taken away from Davos or things that have reinforced, been reinforced for you?
4: Yeah, well, first, I think it's a really important venue for us to be in as communicators, and I'm happy to see so many of the communications professionals here in Davos. Um, I think it's important not just for us to support the enterprises, but for us to come together as a community uh, in Davos and talk about those issues that are relevant to us. So I'm happy about that. I think some of the takeaways are there's a definite acknowledgement that our jobs are getting harder as communicators. The, op- the world in which we operate uh, is getting more complex. The, the expectations on the power and the role of communications getting more challenged. So I think we're up for the challenge. But I do think taking the time outside of your daily lives to come step in and look in the global stage that the issues we're facing and recognizing there's a direct correlation between the work we do every day as PR practitioners and communicators to every topic that we're talking about at Davos is energizing. I think an opportunity for our industry.
3: Yeah, well said. Enjoy the rest of the week, Chris, and good to see you.
4: Great. Thanks so much, Steve. I appreciate the reporting.
3: Hi there, it's Steve at Davos, I'm here with a cover star of PR Week, Nadia Okamoto. She was a great cover star of our November-December issue and um, gave a great interview to Jess Ruderman and uh, she's co-founder and CEO of August. But uh, Nadia, in terms of this week, you're working with TikTok on their creators' initiative, so firstly, welcome to the podcast. Secondly, tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so thank you so much for having me here as part of the TikTok delegation. So they brought out four creators from around the world to kind of be able to represent what the experience is like using TikTok as a platform, both for you know, advocating for causes that we care deeply about, but for me specifically, TikTok has been so influential for the business that I run. And so I am yeah, very, very happy to be here on behalf of a platform that uh, has really changed my life in many ways.
3: Yeah, because you've got five and a half million followers. That's across all socials. All, all socials. Yes. Okay. And which ones do you find most effective or is it a case of, well, you're going to say TikTok. I guess. I, I, mean, I would
1: say, I think it's probably the ecosystem in all, you know, I think my main platforms are really TikTok and Instagram. And I think that they, I think of my audience on both of those platforms is very different, right? I think that TikTok is an incredible way to foster, you know, kind of top of funnel first touch point awareness. And I think that that, you know, the way the app is set up from having a for you page that is just constant discovery to new audiences I think is really something you can't find on other platforms, um, you know, versus maybe uh, Instagram or something where I feel like I'm fostering a lot more of a focused community sort of, um, of people who, you know, might have met me for the first time on TikTok. Um, but yeah, I think as a business, as a consumer brand, we make tampons and pads at August. And I think being able to tell the story of the company and be able to introduce ourselves has been huge and to do so through social media.
3: Yeah. And tell us about your Davos experience and the type of people you meeting and because it's a bit of an assault on the senses it's your first time here how are you uh, finding it?
1: I mean it's been it's been pretty magical in the sense that this is such a beautiful setting you know we're in the snowy mountains. A bit cold. A bit cold but uh, but we're in the snowing mountains of Switzerland and so it's absolutely gorgeous. I think it is what I expected in the sense that everybody is here and so eager to network. And I find that a bit overwhelming because I'm definitely outspoken and I can be social, but I'm also introverted. And so I feel like it's definitely a marathon of constant, you know, social stimulation. It's a lot of panels, a lot of like who's who, um, but uh, the topics being covered are all things that I care about and I'm, you know, reading about or listening to podcasts about already. Um, I also think it's really fascinating to be here amidst the global news or even at home news about the 2024 election, you know, like I'm here, but listening to the podcast episodes about the Iowa caucuses, you know, and I think to be able to be in this setting while all that's happening in the world and hearing people's real time reactions has been has been really interesting.
3: Yeah, it's very much a global perspective, isn't it? And we tend to be a little bit insular in the US. Um, as a lot of countries are going insular. So having everyone from around the globe coagulating in one place is does give you an interesting perspective what um what reaction are you getting from people i mean there's a lot of men in suits around yeah. ra- around Davos, aren't there um, but are you getting a a, a receptive audience
1: I mean, I personally love talking to men in suits about periods because I think it reminds me why I do what I do. You know, I think that the, you know, when I talk about, oh, you know, we make period products for everyone who menstruates, regardless of gender. Right. And I say to something like that, I can see them kind of have this light bulb or confusion moment. And to me, I find that very energizing. of like, oh, yes, that's why we exist, you know. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, I talk to them about what I do on TikTok and I kind of mention you know, I've built a following talking about period blood, showing period blood and they asked me some clarifying questions but um, I think that honestly at the same time everybody I've met here once they understand has been I think very supportive because I can explain how period poverty period stigma is directly linked to uh, hindrances in achieving gender equality and I think that that's something that everybody here is is massively supportive of right everywhere all around the promenade all around Davos is this focus on the SDGs right and I've, I've felt this big I think everybody's feeling this wake-up call too of this we're at this halfway part um, towards the, achieving the SDGs we're not really on track to reach many of them especially from a climate perspective and so I think when I talk about what we're doing even from a sustainability perspective and the work that I do with making more sustainable pro- sustainable products have found uh, absolutely support there too
3: yeah and period poverty is, is a global. Problem. Yeah, it's much more of, of an issue in developing countries, isn't it? So it's uh, the, yeah. Everyone's here from those countries.
1: Well, and but w- at the same time, what I find really interesting is uh, is how, in many ways, there's this assumption that the U.S. is very far ahead in reproductive rights and progress around period poverty, but in many ways it also very much still exists, right? And for example, I was talking to the other TikTok creator from Indonesia, and she was so surprised that we felt a stigma around periods, right? And in Indonesia, they have period leave. So if you have your period and you can just take a day off, go work from home, that is not something at all that we have in in the US. (laughs) And there are whole countries, you know, UK, India, Australia, Scotland, free period products. But these countries have repealed the tampon tax, which is the tax on period care that doesn't exempt them as necessities. Um, It's countries that are fully eradicating the tampon tax, and yet in the United States we still have 21 states that tax period products as non-essential items, but vending machine sales, gun ammo, uh, private jet fuel parts in some states don't have that tax, right? So I think I, I am also feeling as I'm talking about the issue with people from other countries that I think even that they are surprised by how much progress we still need to make in the U.S.
3: No, that's very true, very true. Finally, you're the epitome of an influencer. (laughs) You're also a CEO. You've got so many hats that you wear. Do you see yourself as self as a like the future of marketing or communications and people like you who are kind of superseding you know, traditional communications roles and marketing roles? Or are you kind of just adding to the mix and additive?
1: You know, I think that we're, you know, at August, um, me and my co-founder share a lot of the CEO responsibility. And I would say that for us, in terms of what marketing looks like for next-gen consumer brand. I think that there absolutely are these themes of a curiosity for more transparency and people wanting to know the story behind a company, who's behind the company, right? I think that there's kind of this, especially amongst like Gen Z, Gen Alpha, there's this skepticism of for-profit companies of who's behind them, who's benefiting from them. And I think that one thing that August really tries to do but also me and my co-founder are really committed to is kind of lifting that veil and saying, you know, this is who we are, these are our intentions These are, this is how we're growing and what our goals are. We might make mistakes along the way, but this is what it looks like. And you know, we have a small and nimble team of seven people. And I think for me being on social media, being an influencer is my way of kind of living out that value of very, very transparent business, right? Of who I am, why I do this, why I'm passionate about this. And I think me and my co-founder probably do that in different ways. Is that the future of marketing? I don't want to say yes, because I don't think everybody is made to be a social media creator. You know, it's a lot of work. It's a whole other full time job. Um, But I think for me, it's something that fits into my skill set and my interests very naturally.
3: I totally agree. That's why we had you on our cover. So great to chat with you, Nadia. Enjoy the rest of the week. And uh, if you want to find out more, do check out the profile on PRWeek.com. And uh, you'll be able to see Nadia at our healthcare conference in May. So she's going to keynote um, that event. And we're really looking forward to it. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. It's Steve Barrett here at Davos, here with Jim O'Leary, who's the North America CEO of Weber Shamwick. Delighted to be here on this warm and sunny day. Yeah, it's, not, uh, it's not can, is it? <laughs> it is not can. <laughs> not everyone's in Davos. We're well aware of that. And probably a lot of people are going, what are they whining about? You know, being beautiful mountainside views, etc., which we can see out the window as it happens. Um, but for a communicator, maybe give two or three things to take away from what's happening here that might be relevant to them in, you know, in terms of tips or big trends and and things that are particularly pertinent to the comms sector.
5: I think, you know, it's safe to say that the role of corporate affairs, corporate communications is arguably more important than it's ever been, driven by, you know, larger trends um, affecting CEOs around, you know, risk and resilience. Um, around geopolitics and macroeconomy, et cetera. Um, so that's one. Two, I think th- with the election year in front of us, and that's not just in the United States, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot to navigate uh, from a geopolitical perspective that um, I uh, certainly, and I know a number of my clients are already in the middle of.
3: Yeah, whilst there are 60-odd elections, there's one that everyone's looking at in the world, isn't there?
5: There is certainly (laughs) one that uh, (laughs) is is pretty high profile right now. And I guess, you know, while some of us were uh, here in Davos, there was... uh, there was what a caucus that was just recently believe, yeah. acquired. Yeah. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. So yeah. So geopolitics certainly, and then I would say beyond all of that, people who are who are in our profession, they should feel. Um, I mean, like like I do. I feel bullish in general, as I have already said for 2024. But I would argue that they should feel bullish about you know the state of our profession given the fact that, you know, we are playing um, what I would say is a more material role in the success or failure of corporations and businesses and brands than we probably ever have. And I feel that way. And,
3: um, and so I I hope others do too. Hi there, it's Steve Barrett at Davos. I'm with Nathan Friedman, who's the co-president and CMO of understood.org. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thank you Yeah. Great to be here with you in Davos. First of all, Introduce what Understood.org sure. does. It's all about neurodiversity and you've got a big initiative on that. that you yes. sort of talking to people this week.
0: Definitely. So Understood.org is uh, the organization that helps the one in five people around the world who have learning and thinking differences such as ADHD and dyslexia. Um, that is part of the neurodiversity community. And we're here because it needs to be on the global agenda. Um, more than 60% of people don't know what neurodiversity is, but it impacts more than 20% of all people, including, and more importantly, uh, impacts people in the creative communities as that is where the brilliance of that difference of thinking comes into play.
3: Now, Davos is a very global event, mm-hmm. and which is one of its beauties, Really, you get all these diverse perspectives. Would you say the US is ahead of the rest of the world in terms of understanding neurodiversity or behind? Where would you put it on the scale?
0: I would say it's in the middle. There are more opportunities for people who are neurodiverse in the U.S. at this point in time, but it is rapidly expanding. But you just hit on something that's very important, and that's difference in thinking. And it's that difference in thinking that is critical, that that provides innovation, productivity, and also really sharpens financial outcomes. There's been reports from Deloitte, McKinsey and others that say when you incorporate people who have and think differently with differences, you get better productivity, you get better communication, you also get better output, which can translate into financial benefit for the company.
3: Everyone's talking about AI uh, this week. Is are people with neurodiverse diverse issues? I don't even even know if issues is the right word, but differences are they um, more? Suited to the AI world of AI and very creative so in, he- in that um, sphere.
0: Definitely in a couple different ways. One, it I think AI can help people who are just beginning their journey with learning and thinking differences understand what is helpful to them. So we've developed different ways of helping people with AI and using that in their everyday lives. Second, AI is uh, development of AI and the engineering and the other things behind it. A lot of people who are, who are neurodiverse can focus on those types of activities um, really well. Um, so there's a different angle to that as well, but there's also going to be a huge human benefit to that when we apply that in the coming
3: years. Now tell us what you're doing this week and why is it important to be in Davos to to get this message out?
0: So it's important to get the message out for three different reasons. One, uh, women in particular and children, girls are underrepresented um, when it comes to neurodiversity. Um, Boys are diagnosed two to three times more than girls. Um, Women uh, are underrepresented in neurodiversity studies and research, and there are no novel pathways to help them succeed at work, home, and in life. And so we need to put this on the global agenda. We need research. We need new ways of helping women and girls thrive, and there's no better place to do it than at Davos to put it on that global agenda. So we launched the Neuro Equity Fund to do a couple different things. One, develop new research two, identify the right pathways, and three, get those pathways into the communities and ensure that women and girls can thrive at the same rate as men.
3: Is there? Uh, are you getting a receptive audience? Is there a real yes. appetite to n- learn more about this?
0: It's been a phenomenal reception to that all throughout Davos. We've spoken a couple panels. People have come up to us afterwards, raised their hand, and pledged to, to support. Um, we're also launching a women's advisory board um, for people around the U.S. and actually around the world to join to help guide this program because it's so important. And there is uh, some exciting news coming up about that in a few months.
3: All right. Well, maybe we'll read about it in PR week. Um, Just to finish up, tell us about Davos generally. I'm not sure how many times you've been, but... What are your impressions and what, are, what other things have you taken away as a, as a sort of communicator?
0: It's, it's been a phenomenal first time. Uh, and I think with first time comes, uh, you know, the a lot of learning. Yes. I mean, you, you learn. Um, and somebody said earlier, I didn't know I need to train for a marathon before I came here. <laughs> um, lots of walking, lots of talking. But I think there's a lot of interesting dialogue and debate, um, not only around AI, but the future of, of and the uncertainty in the world. Um, And so how do you create certainty, build trust in a world where there's a lot of uh, mistrust? And I think communications plays a really critical role in building that gap between where we are and where we need to be. But we can't get too far ahead of our skis, no pun intended here, because we need to make people do ski to work around. (laughs) They they do. They do. um, Or to meetings. um, (laughs) But but, but we need to make sure we take those steps forward collectively um, so we all move forward together.
3: All right, Nathan. Well, thanks for joining us on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week and uh, you. good luck with the fantastic initiative. Really, Thank you so uh, much. Thanks for having really, me. Really uh, interesting to hear more about it. Appreciate it. Hi, everyone. It's Steve Barrett here at Davos, um, checking out all the interesting people who are walking up and down the promenade. Bumped into Sumit Virmani, who's the CMO of Infosys. Sumit, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you here.
2: Thank you Steve. Absolutely exciting to be here and looking forward to speaking with you.
3: Now, Infosys has got its own space as shop fronts which for people who don't don't know Davos, the, the main street is essentially taken up by shop fronts of different companies. And you told an interesting story. We we're, we're going to chat about AI and you told an interesting story. It would be great for you to repeat that for our listeners.
2: Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, as you were discussing, I was I was walking by the promenade yesterday and I said, "You know what? I'm seeing AI as if there's no other topic left in the world to discuss. So I said, "All right, let's let's stand at uh, the a space in the promenade and look 180 degrees and see if I can actually find a view without AI in it."
3: and uh, well i feel miserably. so
2: that 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 is the story of uh, Davos 24 ai is all around us
3: it is and your catchline is ai is everywhere is it not
2: uh, it is actually a uh, promise to the uh, the brand promise is navigate your next but the, the the theme that we're running uh, at diverse this year is being ai first
3: okay so tell us a bit about that and what how does ai fit into is business and there's a lot of chat about the ai but Tell us some real facts about how it's going to develop the, the chat was in 23 24 it feels like time to really f- focus down on action oh absolutely
2: steve i think uh, the last six months have made it adequately clear to all of us uh, both as individuals and, and as enterprises that this is not an incremental digital innovation this is a disruptive one it's it's going to change our lives uh disproportionately and uh, like i said our promise to our clients is that we help you navigate your next so this is a big next on the horizon for all of them and enterprises are actually figuring out how to really approach it so what we typically do is uh, any big tech change that we, we we take it to the world we first actually embrace it uh, within the company. We are a 300,000 people company present across 60 countries in the world. So we are sizably, we are decently sized scale to test and hypothesis. Uh, and before we take it to clients, that's exactly what we've done with, with, with AI. In fact, uh, about a few months ago, we launched Infosys Topaz, which is the first uh, uh, sub-brand in the AI space for, of ID services. And the intent is very clear. The intent simply is consumer AI is going to be different from enterprise AI. How can enterprises just cut through the noise and figure out how to embrace it and scale it? Because we've all learned about tons of use cases, tons of pilots, but how will it all come together? So yesterday we've actually released uh, uh, the top 10 uh, AI uh, views for 2024 for enterprises. And how you should they should think about it? Just to give you an example, if you if you prefer, I'll give you a couple of examples.
3: Yeah, that's about. sure. And then for the for the listeners, that's Tuesday because we're recording this on Wednesday. All and, right, and they'll be listening to it on Thursday and beyond. So
2: yeah, so I think I, I love
3: the list. yeah use cases is great because you don't get so much of that. You get the chat, but you don't get so much of the actual hard you know use cases. So no, yeah.
2: exactly, exactly. So I think the, the idea simply was to actually release these ten ideas based out of our own experiences. For example, uh, hallucinations is not an AI bug, it's an AI feature. The models are actually trained on data where some of, of level of hallucination is going to be a reality. Therefore, if you really have to use AI models, you've got to find a way of training it on the right kind of data, put guardrails around it before you can effectively use it. So that, that that's one example of what's, what's being talked about in those trends. Another example is enterprises, like human beings, have left brain and right brain. Uh, there, there's unstructured data hanging around in the enterprises. There are multiple disparate systems. Unless you bring it all together and bring this, the, the, the analytical and the creative element of the enterprise data, you're not going to see success. Yeah. Uh, models are perishable, but enterprise data is permanent. So the question is, don't get carried away by by models. Focus on getting your data ready for AI. So this is just a couple of examples. So I'll not uh, take take away the sheen from the entire 10, let your readers actually go out there to the Infosys website and check it out. But I think they'll be very useful for folks, especially in enterprises, to understand how to approach AI.
3: Yeah, do check that out. Now, you mentioned the difference between consumer AI and sort of B2B AI, enterprise AI. Where do you see that difference? Is chat GPT more uh, relevant in one of those spaces or does that cross, cross both of those? Uh, yeah,
2: so, so, so the, way, the way to think about it is there, is there are models that are designed for you and I as individuals to use and then there are models that are designed at an enterprise scale level for you to adopt. now, and, and and like I used the word earlier, models are perishable, but your data is permanent. Why? Because as consumers, we've heard of ChatGPT and OpenAI when, when when it launched. But at an enterprise scale, there are hundreds of models <laughs> that are out there uh, that have to be used. And there are advantages and disadvantages of using one model over the other. And that's the reason why it's important for, for enterprises, especially not to get caught up in the, in the model bandwagon and figure out what's the business problem you're really trying to solve and what's the cost equation of a specific model that you need to use to be able to scale it across the enterprise so it becomes cost effective and gives you the results you want for your data.
3: Yeah, and now you, it's your eighth Davos, I think, and I think emphasis has been here 20 years, 20 years plus. What do you get out of Davos as an event? You know, What's the why should, why does emphasis come and what's the value to your company
2: well i think uh, there are two parts uh, that we have in fact i was answering that question in my previous meeting to one of the first time davos attendees and uh, i was saying what we have learned is davos helps us in two ways primarily one from a brand perspective I mean, uh, we have a private space and we, we, we have a private space pretty, pretty close to the, to the Congress Center. Yeah, i past it. ends up becoming a nice showcase of, of brand Enforces. And and, and and as you know, Adava attracts the, the, the right business audience from around the world. Majority of our clients are here. So it becomes a great showcase of what Enforces is about and how the brand is actually helping them. In the, in the, in in navigating the next, uh, so that's the brand play. The second part is is business meetings. I think this is one platform, one promenade where you can actually, in three days' time, cover as many meetings as your stamina permits, <laughs> and that's the the beauty of, of of Davos. And we found those me- business meetings incredibly exciting and uh, very very valuable because in a short span of time. Uh, yeah. Everyone here is, is tuned to extract the most value out of Davos, so they are, they're they're willing to start their day early, stretch their late, and yes, uh, it's like uh, it's a marathon, a week not a sprint. In three days,
3: yeah, no, that's very true. So it saves you endless jaunts around the world meeting those same people. You're absolutely right, and the same with the politics, political side as well. So Sumeet, it's great to catch up. Enjoy the rest of your week, and uh, yeah, good luck with your. Uh, AI initiatives, we need some hard case studies. Do check out that uh, resource that Sumit mentioned on their website.
2: Thank you, Steve. Great talking to you guys.
3: Hi, it's Steve Barrett here at Davos at the uh, Trust Barometer launch that just completed the breakfast. I'm sat here with Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman. Richard, welcome. That's one big task out of the way. Um, tell us a little bit about the, this year's Trust Barometer, because there's some really interesting findings about tech and innovation, and uh, there's a lot of work to be done in that area by the sounds of it. So, you know, we've done this for 24 years,
6: and the prior findings were dispersion of authority, the mass class divide, uh, the infodemic, and the big imbalance between business and government with business being so much more trusted. What we found this year, Steve, is a stunning two-to-one across all income groups genders uh education levels all sorts of countries is people believe that innovation is not being properly managed and what that means is there's insufficient government regulation that there's not sufficient societal context around reskilling and they just don't understand where the science is taking them so they're scared and when people are scared they put their dukes up
3: why is that different to innovation in the past, for example? You know, what's the, the, one of the panelists this morning was actually talking about uh, regulation. And they're saying when the people who invent these products are not, it's so complicated. Even they kind of don't know what the technology can do. How can you expect a regulator to do it? Because they seem quite key in this process.
6: Well, uh, two thirds of our respondents said uh, they think regulators can't keep up. Um, and the big point is the acceptance of innovation should not be assumed by business Uh, just because it's there does not mean that people will use it Um, and so business has to spend as much time on the implementation and adaptation of society as it does on the invention and that's a big mindset change now business has every ability to do it it's the most trusted institution it's 50 points more competent and 30 points more uh, ethical than than government but business again should not be presumptive and it should not be seen as oh, you know, we'll we'll invent it, break it, and fix it. No, we have to do this in a measured way so that people feel as if they have a
3: voice and that um, their concerns are being heard. Does that trust change across generations? Because... What about young people? Because I sense that young people are just getting on and using it. I mean, that was the shocking finding, Steve, in the study. Every income group,
6: every age group, both genders, uh, every education level was all concerned about the pace of innovation and for different reasons. Um, But the threat to jobs, the concern about um, from the pandemic about, you know, government mandated this and gee, the six foot uh, distancing rule wasn't really something substantive. And so all of this has given us PTSD. So we're just a little nervous across green energy. You now, isn't it amazing in the US that 40 point delta between Republicans and Democrats on willingness to use EVs or believe in small nuclear or fusion or GM foods because they feel it's gonna interrupt their quality of life or, or how they choose to live.
3: Yeah, and some of that is to do with mistrusting electronic vehicles in terms of charging and the amount of time it takes and the expense to that. But that's where communications comes in, isn't it? So tell us about the role communications needs to play in directing these narratives and improving the trust between uh, the populations. Because if business is trusted, then it has an opportunity to do that. We found it
6: fascinating that scientists need to be paired with non-traditional authority figures as the spokespeople. So for instance, a pastor um, or a pharmacist or, you know, a local leader um, is just as important as a technical expert. So there has to be the both. And it's also important for communications to appreciate that we want scientists to speak directly to us in language that we can understand. Don't have experts from Washington tell us what to do. We want to hear it directly from the scientists.
3: Could that be a scientist, but could it be an influencer? Could it be someone who is of the generation or is someone who they trust because you know because of of who they are? Look at the the whole Taylor Swift phenomenon or um, other other really big influences like that. I would say Taylor Swift plus,
6: <laughs> meaning we have to have the scientists as well as the Taylor Swifts. And we have to really give a Taylor Swift pre-knowledge and pre-experience with innovation so that she feels comfortable enough to say "Mm, I've tried this it seems normal and that's why and how I'm using it.
3: Yeah because if you remember during the COVID the the distance dance was one of the most effective things on social got billions of views but as you said that's science may, may actually have been flawed and it was so you've got to have the right messaging from the start. We have to make sure that people don't
6: feel as if this is jumping to change. That uh, there's a set of stairs and we should walk every stair. And we should, again, be open to mm, that doesn't seem to work. The, the science is changing a bit. Science can't be inflexible. Um, the rift between science and society is a profound one at the moment. And, Again, science is seen as just running ahead. And we saw this first in the pharma study that we did last March that you and I talked about at the PR Week conference, but it's now evident across food and energy and God knows in AI, because we're right at the moment of the crossroads for AI.
3: So broadening out a bit, this is your 21st Trust Barometer. Why is it important to be at Davos? Uh, You know, detractors will say it's a bunch of elites talking to each other, there was discussion about purpose and sustainability, but there's not there's not much of the of the the opposite viewpoint on display, at least from what I've seen so far. So, just give us the top line on why Davos is important. Davos is important because
6: you actually have a uh, kind of cauldron of NGOs and media. And business and government Uh, and I think hella Thorning Schmidt the former Prime Minister of Denmark said it really quite um, eloquently this morning you know business and government can't have to coexist Um, government has to set a good playing field government has to make sure that the rules are being followed and um, you know it is true that Davos has CEOs and that it doesn't represent the entire world being here but they're representatives of the world and I find it the most interesting five days of my year. I learn a lot.
3: Yeah. And what about the, the phrase ESG and sustainability, the, the panelists were talking about how important it is and how it has to be baked in, but out there you do hear a lot of dissenting voices and you do actually, it feels as though some companies have almost been cowed into not prioritizing it and not talking about it. We heard of the, the Roche uh, chairman who said he's never been asked about sustainability, which sounds unlikely, but uh, what do you make of all that and, and where purpose is going?
6: I think ESG um, should be baked into corporate strategy. I think that companies have to stay the course and not be pushed away by politics um, because, you know, it, it's, it's convenient to move with the political winds. But a smart business leader stands his or her ground and has a consistency and a messaging that uh, people can appreciate. Remember. We're trying to attract the best and brightest young people to our companies. We're trying to attract as customers the uh, person who's a belief-driven buyer. You know, this, the, the, the pushback from politicians is predictable because they feel as if it gets them votes. But business needs to be the steadying hand. Again, Prime Minister Thorning Schmidt said, you know, you have a privileged position as business to try to cool and calm the waters um, as we go in, especially in the U.S., to the elections.
3: So it's early in the week and um, obviously the trust promise is a big deal for you. But is there anything else you've noticed just from wandering the streets of Davos and the trends this year just to finish off?
6: Well, the um, Zelensky speech is this morning from uh, the president of the Ukraine, and um, he's going to make an impassioned plea for European and American support, which I personally endorse. I mean. Uh, And I think he's gonna present Ukraine 3.0, which is a future place, which is great for, as a trading partner and, you know, we're gonna focus on a better run government. Um, I also am aware of um, further work in sustainability. Uh, COP-29 is coming for next year. You know we were working on COP-28, and so there are gonna be a lot of sustainability commitments by companies. Uh, And I think um, Professor Schwab is also trying to, you know, do something on Israel-Palestine.
3: And lots of AI.
6: Oh, AI. You just walk down the promenade.
3: And you can't miss it, chief You can't. All right, Richard. Thanks for being with us. I know it's a busy week for you. Appreciate your time.
6: And our love our anniversary is coinciding. 25th of trust and 25th of beer yeah, of week. there you go. Here we go, well,
3: We're all grown up. Thank
6: you. <laughs>
7: And back here in New York, I'm Frank Washkirk, PR Week's executive editor, and I'm joined by Diana Bradley, who is PR Week's associate news editor. Diana, thanks for joining us on the, the in studio location part of the podcast for this week.
8: Thank you so much for do, having do me. Do you
7: miss not being in Davos? You know, maybe get some lounging <laughs> in and seeing all of the there. VIPs and other
8: important um, people yeah i am a little bit jealous but I'm sure Steve is having a great time for all of us
7: and I've been told that the uh, the weather there is actually nicer than it is here right yeah now, I mean we're definitely not, not so. miss
8: we're we're having plenty of snow and ice here and I do not like it.
7: Well, we're holding it down here in New York City, and um, you know, one of the big things that gets announced at Davos every year is Edelman's Trust Barometer. And you know, it has to be said there's there are there more people targeting the Trust Barometer than there used to be. You know, the the Guardian did a an article about it a couple of uh, months ago that was very that was very critical of it, and other people have um, have talked about. you know, Edelman's work with fossil fuel clients and, and, and other uh, countries that they don't believe that the firm should be working with. But um, I think if you asked around the client side, and and I think if you asked a lot of people in the industry, they would say the Trust Barometer is a pretty well-respected report. It has a good reputation. They've built it out a lot over the past few years. So, But it, it is an area where they're playing more defense than they used to. And they released it at Davos this year like they do every year. So, uh, Diana, tell us a little bit about it. Big sure. findings from this year.
8: Yeah, so um, Edelman's 2024 Trust Barometer report found that there's a growing rift between society and innovation and business has the best chance to remedy it. So Edelman found that respondents by a two to one margin say innovation is being poorly managed. Um, Innovation has become politicized, especially in Western democracies, where Edelman discovered that right leaning individuals are far more likely than those on the left to resist it. The biggest gaps are in the U.S., um, forty-one points, Australia, Germany, and Canada. Mm. Um, and as the most trusted institution, business has the greatest opportunity to shift society's perception of innovation.
7: I can see why this is true because if you think about things like AI, a lot of these companies and organizations aren't really going out and explaining at a very at a very general level how this might help you do your job better rather than take your job or, yeah, you know, true. whatever the case is. And I, I think they do need to do a better job of that. And then, you know, you really get away from the fear that it's just going to, you look, there were all these predictions like a year ago, a year and a half ago that, that all of these jobs were going to be gone to AI as of right now. And that hasn't materialized. Thank goodness. Yeah. So, um, I, I do think that The tech sector has to go out and say, this is what this this technology is going to be good for. Here's what it's not going to be good for.
8: Absolutely. Yeah okay what else yeah. CEO Richard Edelman um, in his essay on the on the trust barometer urged businesses to be inclusive speaking to the mass population as much as the inform as much as to the informed elites he said that necessita- that necessitates using both experts and non-traditional authority figures especially as people now trust a lay person as much as scientists on information about innovation
2: mm-hmm. on the move.
7: okay let's also move on to a really well-known person out in the industry, Aaron Sherinian, he has a new role.
8: Yeah. So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has named Aaron Sherinian as MD of Communications. Um, He has replaced Eric Hawkins, who exited the role due to to health complications. Um, So Aaron will lead a global team managing areas such as media relations, government, community, and interfaith relations, reputation management, channel management, and messaging. Um, he'll always also be an advisor to the church's senior leadership and he joined from uh, the Desert Management Corporation which is owned which by Which is owned by
7: the LDS Church, yeah.
8: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he was SVP of Global Reach there.
7: Big role for Aaron and yeah. again a prominent guy in the industry wishing him luck in the new
2: role.
8: It's also interesting because of his background before that he was at a tobacco company Philip Morris International as VP of Global Communications Transformation. So yeah, he's had a very varied career there.
7: I'd say so, okay. Here's a bit of a surprise people move, don't you think? I don't think a lot of people expected uh, the next one you're gonna talk about, which is the Virginia Devlin. Uh, the CEO of Current Global is uh, stepping down in a few months.
8: Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, Virginia is set to retire in March and a search is underway for a new CEO. She has led Current for the past 18 years since its 2006 launch and the present iteration of Current, which is part of the weber Shamwick Collective, was formed in April 2019, when IPG merged the agency's current marketing and creation. Mm -hmm. So um, I talked to Virginia, and she she noted a few highlights and, and particularly said that she's forever indebted to the Clorox company, which was the agency's first client, and the two still work together today. And Current was actually behind Clorox brand Kingsford's Preserve the Pit campaign, Mm. which won our campaign of the year at the PR Week Awards U.S. 2022.
7: Interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about a few other consumer marketing campaigns. Uh, Let's talk about Josh Wines. Why are they in the, the social media news cycle?
8: Yeah, so they, Josh Sellers, which is the official name of, of Josh Wines, um, they're being mocked on social media uh, for their their name. Um, the, the basic gist... Why? What's
7: wrong with being named Josh? <laughs> they,
8: the basic gist is that uh, a lot of ex-users, they hadn't heard of this wine, and they, they saw this picture. One particular user posted a picture of the of the wine, which is just a wine bottle with the the label, Josh's Wine, Mm -hmm. and I think the user's name was Optimus Grind, and he said... I'm not going to keep telling y'all to grow up and leave that Stella and barefoot alone. This tweet or X post, this caught, This was the start of like a big conversation. A lot of people <laughs> then joined in on the fun with memes mm-hmm. and they were all just basically, they couldn't get over the fact there's a wine brand named Josh. Well, it um, really
7: that hard to believe.
8: They could not believe it. Wow. So it's become kind of a joke, but, the company's kind of leaning into it. Uh, Dan Kleinman. Yeah, good for them. Good for them, yeah. Good for so them. Dan Kleinman, he's the company's chief brand officer. He said he's happy to let the memes flow. Um, he said it was hard not to notice how hilariously creative people have been on social about all this. Uh, delighted to see the brand being part of the broader social media conversation. He was a bit surprised that Josh Sellers is just being discovered by some people. But he uh he's happy about it and by the way josh sellers aor is image land which is la force's sister agency
7: Mm. okay uh i I personally don't think that consumer brands should be named after people and especially not hot sauces (laughs) but moving on it's my poor joke for the week isn't it
8: i like it hot sauces i like it hot sauces. Hot yeah. sauces. Yeah. All right. There aren't many. Are there any other hot sauces with like a person's name attached?
7: There there are, yeah.
8: Yeah. yeah. I know there's there's Franks. Yeah. Are there any others?
7: Which I have nothing to do with. I'm not the I don't know. I'm I not the like I'm not is, the heir to the Franks hot sauce fortune, believe I think it or not, Mike's hot sequalier.
8: honey.
7: Is it oh, yeah. Mike's oh. hot honey? Yes. It's not a hot sauce, but it's a hot honey. It's mm. a
8: type of it's delicious sauce. Yeah. <laughs>
7: Okay, let's move on to uh, <laughs> what is this? So, what are the, the case study this week? And by the way, our case studies are always excellent, and you should check them out if you if you, you haven't already. This is the uh, what is it called? The fast meat car.
8: Fast meat. Uh, so,
7: wow! Explain this one. But, we'll, yeah, you've got the full a, hour. Of,
8: <laughs> I'm going to need it. Um, Slim Jim. Uh, they they have a custom Nissan Z known to fans as Fast Meat. And it's been on the move as part of an ongoing partnership with the WWE, making recent stops in Chicago for the Survivor Series event before traveling on to L.A. for a custom video shoot. But then the car went missing. Um, And at that point, Slim Jim's parent, Conagra Brands, issued a press release announcing that the car had been stolen. Um a lot of fans were skeptical however because the world of professional wrestling is just full of stunts some people were like eh, I don't believe this is this is just a brand thing but no this was real the car was really really stolen the Fast meat was Fast meat was stolen Chicago.
7: in Chicago
8: in I think it was in California Oh I was going to say yeah. is there we but is did, there some but tie into to, the, to in, the bear here <laughs> no no there's no tie to the bear so the brand was not sure if it should take the risk of like doing anything fun with this because mm. number one they didn't want to come across as opportunistic in a cringy kind of way and it, is but, a crime. Uh, it is a crime and and yeah. they said that once they knew there were no issues with personal safety or anything of that nature and had made the right calls and discussions, they felt like it was worth taking a chance with using this as a marketing opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't, just as a reminder, Slim Jim has a, has loyal followers called the long boy gang. Are they still around? Have, they are. And we yeah. have many a good story on this. So definitely check out our long boy gang content. But, um, they encourage their followers to use the hashtag findfastmeat on social media to spread awareness of the theft and um, contact the LAPD with any tips. Um, now, our
7: listeners can't see this right now, but the, the fast meat car is <laughs> blown up in four foot wide photo in our
8: It is. Thank you studio for that, it's, it's very. Yeah, it's It's amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, And so on X, Slim Jim pulled fans out with the new car, about what the new car it should purchase, its paint and logo placement, what it should be called, that kind of thing. They were doing all this, just thinking they'd never get the old car back. But Mm -hmm. then on. December twenty second. But hang
7: on, if you, st- I mean, again, we're we're looking at this <laughs> massive image of a bright yellow and orange car that says Slim Jim and a two foot square wide logo. I mean, if you stole this car, if you if you committed <laughs> grand theft auto hard to hide. with this car, I mean, where would you possibly put it?
8: Uh, I guess that's why they decided to return it finally. So I guess that's so. why
7: it was found. It, quickly. Yeah. Um <laughs> uh
8: the the police reported they recovered the car outside Chicago. So yeah. it did make it from California to Chicago without anybody <laughs> somehow spotting it. It's
7: one of those um, things. It's so outrageous. I mean, people wouldn't even think it's suspicious. That's
8: true. And even though it was found, Slim Jim moved forward with its plans for a new vehicle, um, which is a Nissan GTR with a yellow to red color shift, which it unveiled this week.
7: All right, so um, Diana, and- you're you're an astute, you're an astute observer of the um, consumer marketing and stunt space. So what what are the other brands that have vehicles? There's the Oscar Mayer uh, uh, Oscar Mayer
8: Wiener, which they just changed the name. Did they? What is it now? I think isn't it like the Frank Mobile or something?
7: Oh man, <laughs> two. Too many of those. Oh brands. no,
8: there's too many Frank names. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think.
7: Well, there's at least the Wienermobile.
8: Oh, there. Mr. Peanut did have a mobile yeah. type thing. I don't know how many other crazy brand cars there are out there. In okay, room. well, oh, the mean, Nutmobile,
7: the Nutmobile, yeah. That looks pretty hard to drive. To be fair, I mean, as does the Wienermobile. <laughs> I remember that campaign where it was like interns or recent grads could just drive around. And yeah. was it was it the Wienermobile?
8: It was. Or and I think in, they had, they they have a lot of campaigns for people to drive that thing. Uh,
7: so how does that's, this? I mean, exciting. how did they reconcile the the Nutmobile with? Remember when Mr. Pino was killed off for a little while?
8: How can I forget?
7: Yeah, that's yeah, true. Really. <laughs>
8: That was quite a moment. Put a dent in back. your
7: professional life for a while. Discovering <laughs> yeah. all this, he's of them. back
8: though. He's back and all is well in the world. I
7: right wonder now. if these these mobiles will keep getting stolen in like a fast and furious kind of way. <laughs> and there's there's various sequels. So that we'll could keep make an, an amazing
8: movie. In future amazing case script. studies
7: to come on that. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Diana. Uh, a few public service announcements. Uh, PR Week's 2024 agency business report, it's open for submissions right now. And if you want your agency to be part of this annual industry staple, contact us at abr at prweek.com. Again, that's an email address. That's abr at week.com. The PR Week healthcare awards are also open for entering. The final deadline for those, you have to hurry on these, is January 22nd. Uh, the Women of Distinction program is also open for entry that as a standard deadline of January 19th so again you got to hustle to get those entries in and the PR Week Global Awards are open for entry with a final deadline of January 25th and of course the PR Week Awards are set for March 14th in New York City and you can register and get your tickets via our website unfortunately that's all the time we have for this special edition of the PR week. We will see you all again next Thursday.